0: The teaching from this evening comes from Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. This is God's word. The Amen. word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good evening, it's good to be with y'all um, tonight for the third week in a row. It's been a real honor getting to bring some um, passages to you from the beginning of Isaiah. I'm the RUF campus minister over at UAB And right now we're getting ready for the fall, gearing up for everything that we'll have to do when thousands of students uh, move over to UAB in just about a month. And of course we're preparing, but it doesn't matter how much we prepare, there's just so much that's unknown that we can't prepare for. And as I was looking at this passage, one of the things that made me think of was how wonderful it would be to read a newsletter about our ministry from the future if I could go ahead and read December's RUF UAB newsletter. You know, everything that's happened and just how much peace that would give me now as, as, as I worry about what's going to happen in the fall. And That's true of life in general, I think. Imagine if you could read your family Christmas letter, for those of you who do that, where you send out a summary of the year in your Christmas letter. What if you could go ahead and read that? Know how the rest of the year was going to go and Um, In December, what if you could know already how much money would be in the bank account, um, how your job would be going? What if you you could look into the future and know for sure that your kids were going to be okay, um, that friendship was still going to be intact, that your relationship with your parents would be what you wanted it to be? And I think it's a fact that when you... When you can look into the future and know what's going to happen, it gives you peace. You know, when you know things are going to be peaceful in the future, it gives you peace now in the present, doesn't it? And the passage we're looking at tonight is, is just amazing. I mean, it has one of the most vivid, memorable pictures of what peace looks like in the whole Bible. Uh, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Don Henley, he uses this very passage in one of his most famous songs. There have been presidents quote the passage that we're looking at tonight when they were doing peace treaties in the Middle East. And this passage is going to give us a picture of what peace is and how God creates it in such a way that it strikes a chord with the whole world to one degree or another. And the the passage is essentially saying this, that God has gone out and secured peace by exalting His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the highest rank. And I want to talk about three things tonight rank, going out in peace. Rank, going out in peace. We are in Isaiah um, again tonight. Quick reminder who is Isaiah? He lived about 700 years before Jesus Christ. He was married. He had two kids. And he lived during a time during the decline of Israel. It started a very wealthy nation. And he ministered during the time of the decline of Israel. And essentially that's who Isaiah is in a couple of sentences. But, okay, so what about rank? That's what we're talking about first. And the thing to see here is that In our day, God is raising Christ and his church to the highest rank as people worldwide come in. You see this in verse 2. It says that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations will flow to it. This passage that we're looking at tonight is repeated almost verbatim in Micah chapter 4. What does he mean by the latter days there in verse 2? He means the day of the Lord, the last days. And if you read the New Testament, Jesus and all the New Testament writers are clear that if you want to know when the latter days are, it's, it's right now, right here. And You see this especially when the Holy Spirit is poured out at the beginning of the chapter of Acts where... The prophet Joel, they quote in the beginning of Acts, he prophesied, you know, hundreds of years before the apostles. But when Peter quotes Joel, he says, if you want to know when the latter days are, that all the prophets were talking about, they're right now, right here. Jesus has come. He's been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. The latter days are here. We're in the latter days now. What does he mean by the mountain of God You also see that in verse 2. Basically, the mountain of God in the Old Testament wasn't much of a mountain, just maybe about twice as high as Red Mountain here in Birmingham, a mountain called Mount Moriah. And on this mountain was the temple of God. And that's why they also referred to this place in verse 2. It says that it's the house of God because it's where the temple stood. Fast forward to Jesus' ministry. What does he say about the temple? Jesus got in big, big trouble because he said, I will destroy the temple and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it again. Then he referred to the temple as his body. Jesus said, you want to know where the temple is in the latter days? It's me. I'm the temple. Jesus said that when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw all peoples to myself. What does that sound like? When he's lifted up he draws all peoples to himself. Sounds just like this mountain that he's describing. Mount Moriah, which is normally small, God is prophesying in Isaiah that it will one day become this mountain that dwarfs all other mountains. And when it's lifted up, he will draw all the nations to it, just like the Lord Jesus did when he ascended into heaven and drew all people to himself. So what's true about God always Isaiah's prophesying is one day going to be made known to everybody. God is always big and bigger than everything else. But we don't really see it that way in normal life. And God is saying one day it will be obvious how amazing the salvation of God is when it becomes worldwide. And the thing I want you to see here is that God has established Christ As ranking above all other gods, which are really not gods at all, right? God establishes Christ as greater than all the other gods. He raises this mountain up higher than all the other hills. To show that Christ is greater than all the other gods, which really aren't gods at all. Just gods in name only. And all the nations are flowing to him. And... You see this in Jesus' ministry, this idea that the gospel is going to go out to the whole world. How does the gospel of Matthew begin? That he wants his apostles to make disciples of all the nations. How does this apply to us here at Red Mountain Church? Think about this. God has called us to reorder our lives so that our hearts correspond to what God has already done in Christ. In other words, the question for us is, how are we ranking Christ in our hearts? And does it correspond to the way that, that Jesus' Heavenly Father has ranked him above all the other gods? God has exalted Christ, have we? That's the question. C.S. Lewis put it this way. By valuing... Sorry, I'm just looking at this and the quote just does not look the way that I remembered it. By valuing too highly a real but subordinate good, we have come near to losing that good itself. That's a C.S. Lewis hard to understand uh, sentence. I'll read it one more time. By valuing too highly a real but subordinate good, we've come near to losing that good itself. In other words... By valuing too highly the opinion of others, we've come near to losing the good of others thinking well of us. Or, like this, by valuing too highly vacation or downtime, we've come near to losing the good of deep rest. What God is saying is that when Christ rises to to the highest good in our lives, all those other lesser goods, we can finally really enjoy them. Like I can finally really enjoy a good vacation when I'm not fixated on my good vacation. When I can put Christ on the throne and take the vacation off, I can finally like, find some deep rest there. Rather than when my, vac- my, my, my vacation is on the throne, when it's higher than all the other hills, I just end up miserable on my vacation. <laughs> Constantly disappointed. Okay, that's Rank. What about going out? This is what I want you to see here is that people worldwide are going up to Christ's church because the word worldwide is going out of Christ's church. And you see this in verse 3, it says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us, his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, we've already talked a little bit about this mountain and this house of the Lord being Jesus Christ himself. when he was lifted up, he drew all peoples to himself. He said, want to find the temple? It's me. Jesus is the temple. But in scripture, this, the house of God it talks about here, it also means something else. That when Jesus joins people together to him, who is this house of God, those people then become the house of God too. They're full of flaws and shortcomings and failures, but because they're united to Jesus, they're also the house of God because their savior is the house of God. And so, in this passage, what I want you to see is that people worldwide are going up to Christ's church. And their, tesi- their desire to go up to Christ's church, you see it in three different ways. First, the name that the nations give. They call it the mountain of God and the house of God. They recognize God for who he is. And they recognize um, the Lord Jesus in our day for who he is. The object of their journey... Um, They want to be taught by God. You see that in the passage it says, Come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. These are the nations who were dead in in their transgressions, who did not know the gospel and did not know God. And they're also resolved. You see see their desire to enter Christ's church because of their resolve. It says, um, We'll walk in his paths. They're resolved to act on what they've learned. The amazing thing here is that The nations, in all their ethical and cultural diversity, they have found their greatest joy in the God of his word. That God has sent his word out, and the nations have responded by coming in, and they speak different languages, and they wear different clothes, and they have different stories and different political systems, and all the different things that make nations nations. And yet they have found their unity in the Son of God, a, a, a truly multicultural community where God isn't saying, no, 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 you know, first become American and then we'll talk. Or, no, 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 you know, first take on uh, these nationalistic qualities and then you can come into the kingdom. He's saying, you know, just bring all that with you. All of creation is mine, I mean heaven and earth. Come and worship at the mountain of God. And there was a great story that I saw maybe a couple months ago, and it was all about how uh, Muslim refugees coming over to Europe were repopulating Christian churches as they were being converted and turning places that have been um, hard-hearted and, and difficult to evangelize for a long, long time, those churches are being repopulated and refilled by Muslim refugees converting to Christianity. That's amazing. That is an amazing uh, act of God, what he's doing in these latter days, taking peoples and reconciling them and taking folks that, um, in in our kind of fleshly way of thinking, might not be the first people we'd expect to convert to Christianity. But the Lord, his word is going out, and those people are flooding to the mountain of God in Christ and i've already said this but their their response um they're coming in as a response to god's word going out and you see this it's 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 the law that's that goes out in this passage in verse 3 out of zion shall go the law and zion there is just another name for this mountain of god where the temple was why the law why does he use that word and What Christ says, what what the New Testament says, is that if you want to find the law of God, look no no further than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was the embodiment of the law. When he ascended into heaven and poured his spirit out, his law went out over the whole world through the apostles, beginning in Jerusalem and all of Judea, the ends of the earth. Another image that, um, for the word of God, that scripture uses is the image of light. Remember that one? Where Jesus says, I am the light. The whole world. Not, not just a little pocket of it, but the whole world. Who is the law? Who is the word going at it? It's Christ himself. The light which went out into the darkness of our world. The light that the darkness tried to overcome, but it could not overcome it. This is the amazing thing, I think, about verse 5, the end of our passage. where, So God holds up this amazing vision of what his word is doing. Going out, a light in the darkness, nations responding, coming up. And then he kind of turns the camera away from this vision of salvation. And he turns it back towards the church in verse 5. And he calls the church to walk in the light of such a God... To whom all the nations are pressing in the last days. Jesus said, What? Remember, you are the light of the world. After he said, I am the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others. That's a passage many of us have heard for a long, long time, isn't it? And I think many of us probably feel a a, a kind of knee-jerk, oh right, light of the world, yep, have that Bible verse on my wall, my mother had it on her wall, my grandma had it on her wall. That verse has surely been abused like every verse in the Bible, Right? But what I think what Jesus would have for us is to take it back to his purpose. I mean, if it's in Scripture, it's it's got to be in there for a reason that's true and real and life giving. How will God's law go out? How will the word of God go out into the world? It'll be through us, right? Championing the gospel and word and in deed, not just preaching on a Sunday night. Actually, usually not preaching on a Sunday night. It's what we're doing most of the week. It might look like, you know, teaching the gospel to your child and demonstrating it to them as you change your change change their diaper, or um, standing up for what's true and good and right at work when it's not popular because you believe in the Savior is true and right and good. Red Mountain Church. What's the, what's the ultimate proof um, that God's word has gone out? What's the ultimate proof that the nations are going up to the mountain of God? Well, it's us, right? We who did not belong in the kingdom, we who had no inheritance, God has brought near that which was far away. It's hard for us to remember because uh, some of us have been Christians for a long time. Maybe our families have been Christian for a long time. But we are the ultimate proof that God's word has gone out into the world. Rank, going out, and finally, peace. The thing to see here is that Christ's church will be transformed from violence to lasting peace. Christ's church will be transformed from violence. To lasting peace. In verse 4. It's the most memorable part of the passage. For, for many people. He says. He shall judge between the nations. And shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore first what's a plowshare a plowshare was used in farming to make the soil ready to plant seeds in a a plowshare was a, a farming tool that farmers used to get the soil ready to dig it up so that it was ready to plant seeds and bring forth a harvest what's a pruning hook pruning hook was also a A farming tool that was used to cut vines back in order to make them fruitful. Use the pruning hook to prune, right? That's what you do with a pruning hook. So that the vine could be more fruitful and more full of life. The choice of agricultural here, these symbols from farming go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, where the earth was what? It It was a garden. And what God is saying here is that he's going to take places full of full of war, places where violence is the status quo He's going to make them like a beautiful garden where the energy and effort and determination of everyone who lives there is to give life and to make life more rich to make it more full where people aren't less busy, but their efforts and their energies are are are, are just they have their hands down in it making things amazing and beautiful he's promising an end to the means of war the practice of war and the mentality of war you, you see the means of war there because he's promising to that these these people will they'll beat their swords into plowshares this is the means of warfare right their spears into pruning hooks and also the the practice of war you see because uh, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and finally the, the mentality of war, because neither shall they learn war anymore. And of course, every nation longs for peace. Um, when I was preparing for this passage, I just googled United Nations and this text, expecting to find it somewhere, around, uh, you know, on a United Nations. Uh, picture or brochure or something, because they, they often use um, Old Testament quotes, right, to, um, to promote worldwide education and worldwide uh, equality of wealth. Um, this is the peace that the world longs for. That's not controversial. But what God is saying here is that the mountains that the world try and creates they can't reach any further than that, that everyone's educated and has a lot of money, and they're not killing each other. That's as high as that worldly mountain ever gets. Like um, there's never any like campaign against road rage or divorce, or all the things that make society really hard to live in, even if we all had the same amount of money and we, even if we were all educated. God is also saying that only He can accomplish this. Political power can't do it. Even Christian political power can't do it. There's value in Christian political power, but it's not going to accomplish this. And this is, this is the amazing thing, I think. Um, God's promise to transform the church full of violence into a place of peace. Remember what Jesus said? He said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says, you fool, has already committed murder in his heart. The point here is that we of all people, uh, we of all people desperately need Christ to beat our swords into plowshares. Like the sword, uh, not a real sword, but a... uh, (laughs) The sword you stuck in so-and-so in the kitchen when you were trying to say that word that you thought would really get them, right? We of all people are the ones who need God to help us beat our spears into pruning hooks. Remember that time you lost your temper with your son or your daughter? You treated them like you had a spear in your hand. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That the world is full of violence in ways that we don't think about that are in some ways even more profound than like physical warfare, although I'm not discounting that. It's not our current context here in Birmingham, Alabama, though. The peace that God is promising here is a peace that heals hatred between father and sons. God's peace heals anger between husbands and wives. God's peace heals bitterness between two friends. I think our prayer should really be, Lord, would you beat my spears into pruning hooks? Help me to use my words and my home to give life rather than take it. Heavenly Father, would you beat uh, my sword into a plowshare? Would you help me to use my time, the way that I treat people, in a way that gives life, that's life-producing, and that it's not full of hate and anger and bitterness? The great thing about God's promise is that we are those who do this work. We pray these prayers underneath God's amazing power and his promise. We do this knowing that one day conflict will be totally transformed everywhere, worldwide, into deep abiding connection. Tears of sadness worldwide are replaced with tears of joy. We look forward to the day. We know it will happen because Jesus rose from the dead. We look forward to the day when God's church will be completely at peace. And salvation will be complete, total, worldwide. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do look to you as a servant looks to their master Lord, we need you to help us to to see the world as it truly is, a world full of your word going out and of the nations coming in, a world where our peace has been secured by our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Uh, In and of ourselves, God, we do feel full of violence and anger and hatred, and so we pray that you would help us to hate those things. And to, to look to you, Lord Jesus, to give us peace. Give us kindness. Uh, you who are so full of generosity, help us to be generous like you. We pray this in your name. Amen.